0: Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we'll actually read just three verses this morning, verses 17, 18, and 19, and really focus in on just verse 17. We are almost done with this series that we began the last Sunday of July uh, that I've called Reset, becoming the church culture that Jesus wants us to be, and as I've mentioned now several times, I really do think we have this kind of historic moment to be able to to reset our church's culture, and that's really important because we desire to see God form us into a mature community that produces mature disciples of Jesus. Um, We've taken one last opportunity in your worship booklet to put uh, the document that the session approved last August in there. So just to be reminded again, what is it that we're trying to do uh, as, as a church? Well, we desire to see a, a mature community uh, that produces mature disciples, but in order for that to happen, uh, we need uh, this, this culture uh, and certain stakes in the ground concerning our culture that, that Jesus really is the only hero of our church and, and that the mission he has sent us on involves not just souls, but everything. Uh, Jesus' mission touches on everything, and that the virtue that we desire above all is is humility, as it plays out in humble service, not seeking power for ourselves or positions, but really service of one another. And as we talked about, compassion is what we want to lead with, and commitment is what we give to Jesus and to one another, which brings us to this morning and this passage. Uh, that as we think about our leadership here in our church, how should we respond? How do we relate to them? And as we're going to see, I think, from this passage, trust, not suspicion, is what we give to our church's leaders. Uh, But in order to, to become that kind of people, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do come and we ask that you would, you would come among us and that you would, you would form us into this kind of people, uh, into a culture and a people that, that reflects Jesus, that we would be God's people, reflecting God's glory and grace and steadfast love. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as you know, Last week, we had an ordination and installation service for our deacons, and if you were here with us at IPC, uh, you know how fabulous uh, last Sunday's 11 o'clock service was. Right at the end of the service, we had uh, 11 men down here in the front, eight of whom were new ordinands to the office of deacon, and so kneeled in order to receive the, the laying on of hands and uh, Dr. Francis's uh, installation prayer was wonderful, and and the charge from ruling elder Matt Beyer was was wonderful as well. It was just a great day last Sunday. But I wonder, I wonder if you you heard, if you really heard what what you as a congregation promised to do. There was six ordination installation vows that I asked these men, and then I turned to you. And I, I read to you the, the vow that you take, and it's the same language that, that we use, whether we're ordaining and installing ruling elders, or we're uh, ordaining and installing deacons, uh, and it comes straight from the Presbyterian Church in America's Book of Church Order. This is, this is what you were asked. Do you, the members of this church— acknowledge and receive these brothers as ruling elders or deacons as it may be and do you promise to yield to them all that honor encouragement and obedience in the lord to which his office according to the word of god and the constitution of this church entitles them now I've read those words to congregations for nearly 20 years. And, and as I've read those words and I've said, do you, I've never had someone raise their hand and say, no, uh, not me. Uh, I don't want to do that. Everybody else can. I'm out. Not going to do it. No, that never happens. Every time, just like we did last week, I say, do you? And we said, we do. Right? We, we promise to yield to our leaders' honor encouragement, and obedience in the Lord. But it doesn't work out that way. Instead, all too often, what we extend to them is dishonor and discouragement and suspicion. I have lots of evidence for this claim. I'm just going to cite two lines of evidence. One is historical or or statistical. Uh, One of our ruling elders who... Has served on our session off and on since 1999, so nearly 25 years. He, he put together a list of the teaching and ruling elders with whom he's served in that time. And it's, it's actually kind of a stunning list. Six, since 1999, the last 25 years, six senior or interim senior pastors, including me, 17 teaching elders. Who were formerly associate or assistant pastors here in our church, and then five current teaching elders in those roles, and and that totals 28 teaching elders in 25 years, a little over one a year. And then ruling elders, there were 12 ruling elders when this man came on the session, all of whom have, have retired and or graduated to glory. 19 former ruling elders who are no longer serving for various reasons, and then 26 current ruling elders on the session right now, which totals 57 ruling elders in 25 years. Now, there, there are several reasons why a church like ours would have 85 teaching and ruling elders. It's 28 teaching elders plus 57 ruling elders. 85. Teaching and ruling elders to serve in 25 years, that's on average about 3.5 a year. Um, certainly our size would warrant some of that. Um, certainly rotation, the rotation of elders, that would warrant some of that. Certainly with some of our teaching elders, there were bad hires or bad fits. But, but I, I think the reason for this kind of turnover is that this isn't an easy place to serve. Our elders come to shepherd and to care for God's people, but instead, all too often receive dishonor, discouragement, suspicion, and they get off the session determined not to come back, which leads me then to my second line of of evidence, which is antidotal. Last year, last June, June 2021, Um, As the session uh, was going through the process of examination for the the 11 uh, elder candidates who were eventually certified to be on the ballot uh, for the annual meeting last year, nine of the men uh, were actually returning to the session. Uh, And so what we usually do in that process is is part of investigating their call to office. We'll ask them the question, why do you think that God is leading you at this time to come back onto the session at IPC? And to a man, every single one of them said, I don't really want to come back on the session after which they, they immediately followed that with, but, but I think God's called me back for the season. I've had a clear sense of calling to do this and so forth. But it, it was the first part that struck me. I didn't really want to come back. Why would that be the case? Why, why, why would all of the men say the same thing? Well, certainly there have been seasons in which uh, the, the sessions had very difficult work to do, um, whether it's in overseeing y'all in the congregation or, or with one another, and, and certainly the work of the elder is hard, and it's challenging work as we oversee the souls of men and women, but, but I think the real reason was this is hard work because of suspicion, distrust, dishonor, it all too often comes with the work. But friends, this is, this is not who we want to be. And I, I know that's not who you want to be. We collective, Nobody here says, oh, I want to be part of a church where the, where the elders so dis, dislike the work they're doing because we're, we're harming them that they don't want to come back on the session. Nobody wants to do that. I, I understand that. We don't want to be this kind of church. But if, if we don't want to be this kind of church, then, then the church culture that we, we need to embrace, the church culture that Jesus wants us to have, is one in which the humble service that we as leaders give to you and to him is received with gratitude and joy. Friends, That's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in these verses we read together. He, he's telling them, he's telling us... That trust, not suspicion, is what we give to our leaders. So what does this trust look like? Well, as as we think about what trusting church leadership looks like, we have to admit up front that that talking about it is challenging for, for at least two reasons. And the first is that many of us have experienced abusive relationships with church leadership. It may have been that you've experienced that here. Um, with some elder or some ministry leader, right? Maybe that you've experienced such abusive uh, use of power elsewhere, where you've been berated or, or manipulated or, or even betrayed. What you said in, in confidence was, was spread about as gossip or slander or some such thing. I, I want to name the fact that that happens and it's wrong. You've had it happen. It's happened to me. And it makes, us, it makes it hard for us to trust church leadership. But we ha- also have to admit that, that another reason why it's challenging to, to talk about trusting church leadership is that, is that some of us would prefer not to commit to church leaders at all. We, we, we really like being independent in the position of, as we talked about last time, a consumer or a critic or a cynic. I'll never forget early in my ministry here when a, when a gentleman wanted to meet with me. And I said, great. And, and so he showed up in my office and, and he started by telling me how much he, he enjoyed worshiping with us at IPC or as he insists on calling us, independent. And he used all the syllables, independent. I, I, well, I asked him in response to that, when, sir, when did you become a member here at IPC? And he said, oh, oh my wife and I, we, we've never joined here in fact, we would never join a church, but we love independent. I thought that was weird, but okay, whatever. I hear some weird things in my line of work. Um, And so then I got off that topic and went over to the other relatively safe topic when you're meeting someone for the first time. What do you do for a living? Well, he says, I run an HVAC business. And I said to him, "Well, what is it called? He said, independent HVAC. Well, then the penny dropped. Everything clicked. Here was someone who was determined to remain independent, to call his own shots and not to entrust himself to another and determined not to trust. Perhaps it's some of us. The writer to the Hebrews here, though, calls us to a different way, the way of trusting our leaders. And what does that trust look like? It looks like two things. It looks like responding and respecting Notice verse responding. Look look at what the writer says. Your Bibles are open, right? Hebrews 13, verse 17. He says, obey your leaders. Now, now that language obey, it's actually a little unusual. This is not the typical word that shows up in the Greek New Testament for obey. It's it's actually a word that has the idea of, of persuaded to respond or persuaded to obey. And that verb is part of the reason why the the longtime british pastor uh raymond brown summarized this idea as responsive obedience it's in response to the persuasion of the ministry the word that we we obey god's word as it comes from our leaders we, we trust their ministry and we not only trust their ministry but then we respond to it now don't hear what I'm not saying. I, I don't mean that we should just simply blindly receive whatever our, our leaders say. Blindly receive whatever comes from this pulpit. You need to check me. My great desire for you is that you be like the Bereans, and described in Acts chapter 17, who, who examine the scriptures daily to see if, if these things are so. And just as an aside, I'll mention that's, that's part of the reason why you need to bring your own Bible don't simply rely on the pew Bibles or rely on your phone. Bring your own Bible. And when I say, you're, you've heard me say this almost every Sunday, your Bibles are open, right? Look at the verse. I'm doing that not just because. I'm actually asking you to check me. Am I getting what I'm saying to you from the Bible? But once you see that these things are actually from God's Word, and they are so, then honoring your leaders means we respond appropriately. Respond in line with the way the Bible is calling us to respond. Whether it's to put our faith in Christ, or whether it's to repent from some sin, or whether it's a renewed determination to pursue holiness, or whether it's a call to engagement with God's world and and with our city. Whatever the response is that's that's seen from God's word, we actually demonstrate that we trust our leaders when we see that it's in the Bible— and then we do it. We're persuaded to that end. We respond. But another way in which we, we we trust or we demonstrate our trust in our leaders is not just responding, also respecting. That's the rest of that language there in verse 17. You see it, right? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, the The word there for submit is is also unusual. This is the only time that this particular Greek word shows up in the New Testament. Um, In classical Greek, that it actually has the idea of a habitual readiness to comply. It it sometimes was used in military contexts, the habitual readiness of a soldier to comply with appropriate commands. It's Because of that, the New Testament scholar William Lane, he, he observed that the community is summoned here to respect the authority with which the leadership has been invested by God. So as they respond to God's word, they are actually respecting the role that the leaders have in pointing men and women and boys and girls to Jesus through the word. That's what trust looks like. Trusting our leaders looks like responding to God's word and respecting the role they've been given in pointing us to Jesus through his word. But why is that trust warranted? If we admit that that trust looks like responding and respecting, why is such trust actually warranted? Well, again, the writer of the Hebrews, he gives us two reasons why that trust is warranted. And and the first reason is that our leaders are, are keeping watch. You see it? Obey your leaders and submit to them for, because they are keeping watch over your souls. Keeping watch. That language has the idea of of a watchman watching over a city, Uh, certainly watching for dangers outside the walls, but, but especially watching for dangers inside the walls. And, friends, that's what our leaders do. They are keeping watch over you. Our pastors and elders, as we, as we do this work that God's given us to do, we are keeping watch over your souls. Why? Because, it's because our great goal is for you to make it to heaven safely. That's not like a fait accompli when you come to Jesus. I've, I've seen people fumble the ball. In the third and the fourth quarter of their lives, in the last two minutes of their lives, where where some something shook their faith in such a way that they, they became to they became into, they came into the place of doubting the gospel that they had professed all of their lives, or they or they make it to fifty and their kids are out of the house and then they begin to to play loose and fast with Jesus and, and before you know it, they're they're gone. I don't want that for you. None of your pastors and elders want that. We want to make sure you get to heaven safely. How does that happen? We keep watch. We keep watch over you. And we warn you about things that are going on in your lives. We say to you, hey, we see this pattern here. You better watch out. This is a pitfall. You know, you notice that you've got this calendar thing going on. You need to watch out. I mean, certainly as watchmen, we, we need to warn you about, about things that are going on outside the walls, things that are out there. But friends, those things out there aren't the real danger to your soul. The things out there aren't what's going to keep you from heaven. It's right here. It's what's going on in your heart. And it's the task of an elder, a pastor, to keep watch. Watch. God's Word tells us then we are to trust those who keep watch over us by responding and respecting them, because we know that they are are watching over our souls for our good, not for our harm. there's a second reason why such trust is warranted, not just because leaders are keeping watch, but also because we have to give an account. You see the rest of what the writer says in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It's one of the most sobering things about being an elder in Christ church. Whether you're a ruling elder or teaching elder, it's one of the most sobering things that, that I am going to have to give an account for my ministry to you. That I'm going to have to to give an account of this stewardship. One of the things I I said at my last church as we talked about the importance of cleaning our church roles is I don't don't want to have to give an account for people who don't show up and haven't been at church for 10 years. I I have this stewardship that's been entrusted to me by the laying on of hands that I see not just as the elders' hands, but but Jesus' own hands, And I'm going to return that trust back to him. I'm going to return that stewardship back to him and have to give an account of the stewardship. And all of your elders are. It's a sobering, sobering thing. We have this ministry as a a stewardship. And we have this this ministry as a stewardship in which we play for an audience of one. I mentioned that the first week of this series. We are servants for your your sake, yes. We're your servants, but ultimately we're, we're your servants for Jesus's sake. We, we, we're held accountable by him. We're, he's the one that ultimately to whom we'll have to give an account. You may think that you, you hold us to account because you can vote us out of office. No. The, the, the real account is on the last day at the assize when, when your elders... We'll have to give an account of their stewardship. How how did they how did they carry out this ministry here? That that's the real accountability that's coming. And that means then, when because of that reality, that we are keeping watch of your souls, and we will have to give an account. There are some things we cannot explain to you. Some things where we're going to have to ask you to trust us. We have to do certain things because we believe that Jesus, in his word, is summarized by our doctrinal standards. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger and Shorter Catechism and the Presbyterian Church in America Book of Church Order are requiring us to do so. There are disciplinary actions that we take that we can't necessarily explain. We can announce certain things, but we can't explain fully what's going on. But we do these things in the fear of the Lord, knowing that He has His eyes on us and we have his eye, our eyes on Him, and we know we're going to have to give an account. We have an obligation to, to the Lord to do these things, and we took vows to do them. I'll never forget one time sitting with a man who had committed adultery against his wife and was seeking a divorce. And I said, Look, you may not have kept your vows to your wife, but I made promises to God, and I'm going to keep my vows. I'm going to keep my vows. And those times when your elders are keeping their vows, we're asking you to trust us. Of course, part of that trust is developed when when we talk about the things we can't talk about. That's why we have the annual meeting, and I go through all the slides and the statistics, and I try to name as much as I can the reality that we're in. Whether it's from a membership standpoint or a financial standpoint, I try to talk about these things. Likewise, if you were to make an appointment to talk to me and ask me questions, I'll try to tell you as much as I can that's appropriate one of the hard things over the last little bit has been lots of people have talked about me, very few people have talked to me, and actually asked me questions. But in the end, trust it for our leaders is warranted, according to the writer to the Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because your your leaders are keeping watch over your souls, and we'll have to give an account. So what would happen then within a church culture if we trusted our leaders this way if we responded uh, to the ministry of the word and respected the role that they were playing because we know these things are so what would happen how would it shape our church's culture well for our leaders the result would be joy not groaning that's the second sentence there in verse 17 right you see it let them do this with joy and not groaning When leaders receive suspicion, distrust, dishonor, they they groan. And the various uses of that word groan, it shows up that way over and again in the ESV. There is one use in James 5.8 where the ESV translates it as grumbling. It's striking. That's what distrust breeds. A grumbling, groaning, complaining spirit in the leader's they wonder why in the world they're, they're continuing to do this work. Why, why they keep putting themselves out there and putting themselves in this situation. They lose heart and some of them just walk away from leadership. But friends, when there's trust, what a joy it is to serve a people. Because of course the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy actually is God's strength. It's fresh wind in our sails helping us to continue on in this work that's been given to us. How much better it is for our leaders when there is a culture of trust between leaders and people. But it's also better for you, and especially on on the last day. That last phrase, um, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. No advantage to you. Well, that's certainly the case in this life. It would be no advantage to you If your leaders were discouraged and and groaning and grumbling at the treatment they were receiving, and of course that would result in a massive turnover in leadership, and the good leaders would refuse to lead, and and then dishonest, power-hungry men would then step to the front into leadership, and, and there's no advantage to you as a church when that kind of thing happens. But this is also true, and I think it's more true at the end of the age, because on the last day, if your leaders were to have to say, "Well, Lord Jesus, uh, that one or, or this one," they they were hard to pastor. They were bitter in spirit. They were given over to slander and to gossip. Well, there would certainly be no advantage on that last day for you, if that were to happen. How much better it would be for us if our church's culture were one where we kept our promise that we may just last time, but every time we have elders and, and deacons ordained and installed. How, how much better it would be for us if we would yield to our leaders honor and encouragement and obedience in the Lord? Wouldn't we be seen by the world as, as God's people? Oh, that's what God's people look like. They look like those who, who love each other and trust one another, where the, where the elders and pastors and deacons are those who, who offer humble service to the Lord ultimately, but to these people, and, and the people love them and trust them and respond. Wouldn't the world say, Oh, there's God's people? Here in a minute, we're gonna sing that very song. And every time we sing, We Are God's People, and we've sung it a few times since I've been here over the almost six years here at IPC, I, I can't help but think of my first church where I served Community Presbyterian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. You see, that that hymn, We Are God's People, was actually our church's hymn. Uh, It was sung at our particularization when we became a particular church in the PCA, our denomination, and every anniversary Sunday from that point, we sang it again. Uh, We sang it even when we were fighting with one another. We sang it even when there was lots of distrust, uh, people to leaders, leaders to people, leaders among each other. We sang it over and again. And right after Sarah and I left in 2004 to go to Covenant Seminary and the church split, that song was still true. Still true. We are God's people. We are his body. We are his temple. We are his family. How much better it would be for the witness of Christ if, when we sang that song, we didn't sing simply words. But we sang it in such a way that we we said, Yes, this is who we are. We are the people of God, and this is what it looks like. It looks like a people that trust one another and extend to their leaders especially trust, not suspicion. May God make it so. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you that even in those times when we falter and fail. Yet you call us your people. You delight to call us so. And indeed, Lord, we are your people, bought by the very blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to do your good work in our midst of shaping us and reforming us into the very people of God. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals then and let's turn to number 355.